0: On the 5th of November 1605, Guy Fawkes was found in the cellar of the House of Lords in Westminster with 36 barrels of gunpowder, three matches, and a tinderbox in his pocket. He was going to blow up King James I and his entire Parliament.
1: Or so we are usually told. The problem is that there's not a single shred of reliable historical evidence that any of it ever happened.
0: Now, we don't normally stop to say why we're looking into a story at the History Café. good story is a good story, and even better if there's something that doesn't look right about it. But this one is different. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the gunpowder plot has been a bit of a joke among professional historians – of course Guy Fawkes was there with his barrels and his match and his tinderbox. Anybody who says anything else is just a conspiracy theorist or an amateur or hobbyist who spends their time playing what one distinguished historian of the period, Joel Hersfield called a parlour game. It's like saying the Americans never went to the moon or that President Kennedy was assassinated by the mafia. Yawn. So if we're going to spend any time talking about the gunpowder plot at the History Cafe, we'd better be pretty clear about why since we're not interested in conspiracy theories or in parlor games. We're only interested in getting our history done properly. And what we find at the History Cafe is that the more clear historical thinking we do, the better the story always gets.
1: So the first thing we have to do is to clear the tables a bit. We have to get rid of the dirty cups and plates left by people who've been here before. And a good place to begin is asking why the gunpowder plot is treated with such disdain by most professional historians. Well, the fundamental reason isn't difficult to discover. It has to do with one of the key discourses of 20th century history writing. By discourses, of course, we mean the way people think about what they do. Historians always have to understand discourses if they're to assess the evidence any period has left behind, and that includes the history books historians themselves have written in the past. Now, The key to
0: understanding most of the history books written about the 16th and 17th centuries, before, say, about 1970, was that they were written from a Protestant point of view. The English Protestant Reformation was, well, quintessentially English. Protestantism was, according to most 19th and 20th century historians, part of England's true character. It fits in neatly with her triumphant march towards democracy and greatness. Catholicism was medieval and corrupt, and horribly un-English. As we'll see in another of our History Café conversations, the humorists Walter Seller and Julian Yetman, who wrote 1066 and all that, for many decades the best-selling satirical history of Britain, had some very funny and very perceptive things to say about English historians and their love affair with Protestantism. But of course, the gunpowder plot fitted very comfortably into this Protestant English story. It was, according to most 19th and 20th century historians, a desperate, bloodthirsty bid by Catholics, the flailing at a last broken straw, a final, violent, useless attempt to halt the complete victory of the Protestant Church in England. So, of course, it must have happened exactly as we've been told.
1: But that's not all. Late in the 19th century, Catholic historians, and especially the Jesuit Father John Gerard, began to question this Protestant account of the gunpowder plot Well, Gerard had his own reasons. The Vatican was at that time busily canonising martyrs from the Reformation period.
0: Meaning making them
1: saints of the Catholic Church. But the English Jesuits were finding it difficult to get some of their Reformation heroes canonised because everyone believed that they'd been wrapped up in this terrorist plot to blow up the English Parliament. So Gerard set about clearing their name. They had been framed, he said. It had all been a government conspiracy. Well, Father Gerard has been followed by other Jesuit historians, notably Father Francis Edwards, who began writing about the gunpowder plot in the late 1960s. And he became so obsessed with the story that staff at the public record office nicknamed him Gunpowder Edwards.
0: Now, of course, many historians just wrote Gerard and Edwards off simply because they were Jesuits and because they had a particular point to prove. As if the Protestant historians in their turn didn't. But it does have to be said that, unfortunately, much of these Jesuit historians' work wasn't very convincing. It's laced with rather too many speculative assumptions and tended to get detached from whatever else we know about the context and the period. Convinced of the innocence of the plotters, these writers were perhaps trying too hard. All ends up looking rather like another conspiracy theory. Let's just say at the outset that we think it's best not to use their material in our conversation at the History Café. But the sad result of all this was that professional academic historians, even those writing in the last quarter of the 20th century, when the writing of English history began to be much less narrowly Protestant, even these historians have been mostly inclined to treat anything to do with gunpowder plot as a bit of a joke. It's something for amateurs or popular writers, for Jesuits with an axe to grind, a parlour game, something that's beneath the dignity of the professional.
1: Now we want to argue that that's a pity, and rather unhistorical. That's for at least three reasons. The first is that the more we look at the gunpowder plot, the more we discover that it could offer important insights into the working of the court of James I of England. One reason for this is that a great many people doubted the government account of the plot right from day one, right from the very beginning. Even before the plotters were put on trial, there were allegations that the whole thing was a trick hatched by the king's chief minister, the Earl of Salisbury, Robert Cecil, who probably pronounced his name Cecil as his family does today, but we'll stick with Cecil for now. Well, according to this alternative contemporary 1605 version, it was Cecil's agents posing as Catholics who talked Guy Fawkes and a number of other innocent Catholics into rolling barrels of gunpowder into the House of Lords cellar. Even by the time Fawkes, broken by torture struggled up the scaffold and, according to an old tradition, threw himself off, breaking his own neck and cheating the executioner of the pleasure of disemboweling him alive, fingers were already openly wagging in the direction of, yes, the king's minister, Cecil. Now, there's a strong whiff of political and religious manoeuvring here that cries out for our investigation. We should try to discover whether or not these contemporary doubters were justified. Above all, as historians, we should certainly be asking why they had doubts in the first place. The
0: second reason we should be looking at this story is that, well, as soon as you look around the room a bit, you realise that the gunpowder plot was not a freak event. It came at the end of a whole series of plots that look very strangely similar. (laughs) Professional historians tend to laugh at the 1605 gunpowder plot to blow up the English Parliament, and at anyone who even suggests it wasn't exactly as reported. But, well, frankly, that's no way for historians to behave. Right from the very beginning, as soon as the news broke, there were plenty of well-informed people who said that it was a sham, a fake invented by the government. That in itself is worth knowing more about. And besides, the gunpowder plot wouldn't have been the only fake plot, One of the problems here is the way historians tend to split history up. Stuart historians tend to stick to the reigns of James I and the Stuart kings who came after him. Tudor historians tend to stop at the end of Elizabeth's time in 1603. But if you ignore this artificial boundary and look at the period from 1571 to 1605, you at once see a pattern of this kind of plot.
1: In fact, there was an astonishing number of plots in the 35 years between 1571 and 1605, the year of the Gunpowder Plot. There was the Ridolfi Plot, the Throckmorton Plot, the Parry Plot, the Babington Plot, the Lopez Plot, the Essex Plot, the Maine Plot, the Bye Plot, and no doubt others besides.
0: Now, the striking thing is that very few historians these days believe that any of these other plots was entirely what it seems. Every one of them was a complicated, shifting, difficult-to-decipher muddle of genuine treason, naive confusion, and government entrapment. Crucial evidence kept going mysteriously missing or being inexplicably discovered. Much of it was procured through torture and would have no standing at all in a modern court. All of this should raise our historical eyebrows.
1: Scholarly volumes have been written about the underworld of informers, that was cultivated in these decades by the Elizabethan Privy Council. Obscure men who made it their business to acquire information that might or might not be true, but could perhaps be useful to councillors interested in eliminating a rival or pushing an agenda. Therefore, all the material surrounding these plots has to be approached with extreme caution. Nothing is necessarily quite as it seems.
0: And then we're somehow supposed to believe that the shutters suddenly clanged down on this dodgy and obscure underworld at some moment between 1603 and 1605. After the first few months, the court of James I was, we are to suppose, suddenly cleansed of all this nonsense. Somehow the gunpowder plot, two years later, was quite different from all the others that came before it. It, unlike the others, has to be accepted completely at face value. And no self-respecting historian must indulge in the parlour game of asking whether the gunpowder plot was what it was cracked up to be. Ha! Whatever next, pass the port! Now, that doesn't seem to us to be, with respect, a very scholarly approach. We should at least be asking questions about what was going on in 1605, exactly as we have to ask questions about all the plots that came before it. As we shall see, the gunpowder plot has some very compelling connections with them.
1: So there are at least two good reasons for revisiting the gunpowder plot. It tempts us with potentially extraordinary insights into the Jacobean court. It also falls into an intriguing historical pattern that deserves investigation. And there is a third. Pretty much none of the evidence that has survived about Guy Fawkes, his fellow conspirators and the gunpowder barrels stands up to the most rudimentary test of historical credibility. The overwhelming difficulty with a gunpowder plot is with the evidence. As with every historical investigation, you have to start by understanding what kind of documents you've been left with. And this one, as John will tell you, is a serious challenge.
0: One of the tedious questions British school examiners ask students is, how useful is this source? What they're really trying to ask is, what is this historical document useful for? Now the classic example, and one many students in British classrooms think about when they're 12 or 13, is Guy Fawkes' confession from 1605. All you actually need to see from the document is Fawkes' signature. The man's hand is shaking so badly he can barely write. He can't even complete his own name. Of course, you explain to your students he's been tortured, their faces light up, it's horrible history. The gunpowder plot falls into that infamous century of history in which torture, first introduced by Thomas Cromwell in the 1530s, was used as a means of state investigation. The King's order to torture folks has in fact survived. They were to start with something mild, probably the manacles, suspending him by his wrists, and proceed to the worst, presumably the rack, a machine for stretching a man by his arms and legs, pulling them out of their sockets. So, you ask your students, what difference does it make to this confession he's been signing?
1: There's a hand up at the back. We can't believe it. He's so afraid he'd sign anything. Yeah, excellent.
0: So, we'll just screw up Guy Fawkes' confession and throw it
1: away. Is it
0: just no good to us as historical detectives? Longer silence this time. Well, who was telling Guy Fawkes what to write?
1: His torturers.
0: So, what is Guy Fawkes' confession useful for? It
1: tells us what the torturers want us to think. Exactly right.
0: We can't necessarily believe what Guy Fawkes' confession tells us about what actually happened, but it does tell us what the torturers want us to think was what happened. And that's an absolutely crucial distinction.
1: Almost everything you read in modern accounts of the Gunpowder plot is based in large part on what has come to be known as the King's Book. Or to give it its original and rather less convenient title... His Majesty's speech in the last session of Parliament, as near his very words as could be gathered at the instant, together with a discourse of the manner of the discovery of this late intended treason, joined with the examination of some of the prisoners. It was published in December 1605 by the King's printer. It uses as a basis a speech King James had given in Parliament on the 9th of November, a speech that was, in fact, strangely enough, originally drafted by Robert Cecil's secretary, Levinus Monk, and then corrected by Cecil himself. The book then contains a government narrative of the way it uncovered the plot and the signed confessions of two plotters, Guy Fawkes and Thomas Winter. Now, the King's book is not at all unlike a very
0: similar book published by the same printer in 1601 about the Earl of Essex's plot, It too alleged that there had been a Catholic conspiracy, something historians now dismiss out of hand. That in turn is similar to another government account, this time of the Lopez plot in 1594. This one concerned a Jewish-Portuguese physician at Elizabeth's court, who was, as we now know, framed and executed for a treason he didn't commit. So these government accounts, printed by the king's printer, have a pretty chequered history as historical sources but not unlike Charlie Bartlett's account of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the Saturday Evening Post, which we look at in another series at the History Café. Like the King's Book and the official accounts of the other plots, American journalist Charlie Bartlett's piece of investigative reporting on the Cuban Missile Crisis was in fact secretly edited and approved by Kennedy himself. It's definitely not to be used as an account of what happened.
1: We also know quite a bit about the two confessions of alleged plotters Fawkes and Winter, that were printed along with King James's speech in the King's Book. So you remember,
0: with confessions procured by torture, what the confession tells us is not so much what happened, but what the torturers want us to think happened. And in this case, we know who was in charge of the torture. His name was William Wade, spelled W-W-A-D.
1: In August 1605, just three months before the gunpowder plot came to light, Robert Cecil appointed Wade Lieutenant of the Tower of London, Wade had been a close friend of Cecil's since childhood. And just how close became clear when, within months of Cecil's death in 1612, Wade was thrown out of the tower job for embezzlement. For decades, Wade had worked as an agent or intelligencer for Cecil's father, Lord Burley, who'd been Queen Elizabeth's chief minister. Wade had also worked for Elizabeth's intelligence chief, Sir Francis Walsingham. It had been Wade who'd broken into Mary, Queen of Scots, rooms in 1586 and stolen the papers that were used to convict her of treason and led to her death. Although the originals mysteriously disappeared before the trial began and only copies were used. We now know that the plot was, partly at any rate, a sting. Mary had to some extent been beguiled into a scheme to assassinate the Queen by agents working for Burley and Walsingham. In 1594, this same Wade was involved in writing the published government account of the Lopez Affair.
0: The framing and execution of the Jewish Portuguese physician at Elizabeth's
1: court. And was then the chief examiner at the trial. This too has been proven as a case of government entrapment.
0: So the reason for going into all this is that the man who secured the gunpowder confessions, William Wade, had four. In 1603, he was the chief investigator into two more plots, the main and by plots. One of the accused alleged that Wade had induced him to sign a blank piece of paper, on which a fake confession was later inserted. Another of the accused, none other than Sir Walter Raleigh, or Raleigh as he would have pronounced it, knocked a big hole in the prosecution case when he revealed that Wade had been torturing witnesses against King James's explicit order. As we shall see, Raleigh escaped execution, though he was still in prison at the tower at the time of the gunpowder plot. So, there's no doubt at all that Wade was an unscrupulous operator with a long and unsavoury reputation for fabricating evidence and for using and threatening torture. And his speciality was interrogating Catholics. He even ran his own network of intelligences to track them down. No surprise to discover, therefore, that in 1685, it was William Wade, now Lieutenant to of the Tower of London, who somehow induced both Fox and Winter to give their full confessions. That in itself ought to sound our historical alarms. It connects the gunpowder plot directly to the entrapments and half-truths that pepper the decades from 1571. In fact, we know a lot more about how Wade obtained these particular confessions in 1685, and it's pretty ugly.
1: Confessions of Guy Fawkes and Thomas Winter, which are traditionally the key documents in accounts of the gunpowder plot, were wrung out of these two men imprisoned in the Tower of London by the lieutenant of the Tower, William Wade, who had by then a very long and grisly reputation for fabricating evidence on the government's behalf, and especially against Catholics. Ever since the 1570s, Roughly, remember, when a curious and extended series of other plots started happening, government interrogators had adopted a policy of writing statements out from prisoners' answers and then persuading the accused either to make a copy and sign it or, if they were for any reason unable to write, for example if they'd been tortured, to sign the interrogator's version. A copy, not the original, was then read out in court – Of course, it was open season for a man like Wade to fabricate whatever evidence they wanted. More tellingly, under Wade's interrogation in the Tower, both Guy Fawkes and Thomas Winter mysteriously declared that they would only confess to the chief minister, Robert Cecil himself. In Fawkes' case, Wade wrote, telling Cecil that Fawkes' confession was, quote, not to be set down in writing. What does that mean? He advised Cecil to speak with the man alone. Cecil or his clerk then supposedly wrote out the confession that Fawkes had privately made to him. And then Fawkes attempted to sign it, his hand shaking so violently he was unable to write more than his first name. Well, to express a considered historical opinion on the reliability of the resulting document as evidence of what Fawkes had actually done, if you believe that, You'll believe anything. You must be having a laugh.
0: Thomas Winter's confession isn't much better. We don't know whether Winter was tortured or not, though, as we shall see, simply being imprisoned in Wade's Tower of London was threatening enough, let alone the threat of the rag. Anyway, just a fortnight before he's supposed to have written out his confession, Winter had been shot and injured so badly he was unable to use his right arm. But then Wade suddenly writes to Cecil that Winter's hand had rather remarkably recovered and that he was ready to write down all the things he had been privately telling them. So after dinner on the 21st of November 1605, Winter writes, supposedly in his own hand, without any visible sign of discomfort, ten densely packed pages of information. He then signs it, uh, misspelling his own name.
1: We then have two copies of Winter's confession, one in the handwriting of Cecil's secretary which removes various references to people the government doesn't want for the time being to pursue. The other, the one reprinted in the King's book, adds in various references to other people the government does want to accuse. I think we can safely say that not a word Winter supposedly writes in these various confessions can be believed without corroborating evidence. It really would be a joke if it didn't end so badly.
0: So you don't have to be a conspiracy crank to doubt the main documents writers use in accounts of the gunpowder plot. It doesn't need the bright 13-year-old at the back of the class to tell you that what the king's book says, with its king's speech and government narrative and the confessions supposedly of Fawkes and Winter, is only what the Jacobean government wanted you to believe. If these documents had come from Stalin's show trials in the 1930s or from Hitler's SS interrogations at the same time or from an East German Stasi prison in the 1970s or from Mugabe, Zimbabwe or Guantanamo Bay or Saudi Arabia or any of the other torturing regimes in the present century, they would be dismissed out of hand. There are hundreds of ghastly cases in which terrified prisoners confess to crimes they've not committed, whether in fear of yet more pain or to protect family or friends, or in the hope of some less grisly
1: end. The trials of the so-called powder men in Westminster Hall were state showpieces on a par with anything staged since by Stalin or Hitler or Mugabe. They were watched by an audience that had paid high prices, and secretly they were watched by the king himself. Only one of the accused pleaded guilty. This is important. Only one of the accused pleaded guilty, Sir Everett Digby, and he only did so in the hope he'd be executed by beheading rather than by hanging, being cut down, and then being disemboweled and dismembered alive. He was turned down. All the others blankly denied their confessions in court, which, according to a later chronicler, excited some surprise. Only if you ignore everything about the way official
0: investigations and state trials were conducted at the turn of the 17th century would you take any of these documents at face value. They tell us, as any school student will tell you, only what Robert Cecil and his government wanted us to think. Or to be strictly accurate, this material is useless as evidence of the facts without reliable, corroborating evidence. And here's the central difficulty with the gunpowder plot. There isn't any.
1: Pretty much everything we think we know about the gunpowder plot comes from a small collection of documents that is, by any simple historical test, completely unreliable. So what else is there? We do have some confessions besides
0: those of Forks and Winter. David Jardine, an antiquarian who printed the records of the trial back in 1835, found that the plot was followed by an intense six-month investigation. More than 500 statements were taken. But as Mark Nichols, the modern historian of the investigation, agrees, the odd thing about these statements, many of them made under torture or the threat of it in the tower, is that barely a single one of them even mentions gunpowder. Certainly none of them adds a single significant detail about it to the official government account in the king's book. There are, for example, conversations supposedly overheard between prisoners, uh, actually, the guards who jotted them down complained they couldn't hear very much.
1: Didn't they complain they couldn't hear properly because there was a cock crowing and chickens fussing noisily outside?
0: That's right. There's also a lot of documents about a rising in the Midlands at the same time. But virtually all the evidence we have about the gunpowder plot itself comes from the government's own narrative and Forks and Winter's confessions. And that, as we've seen, simply doesn't give us a shred of reliable historical evidence about what actually happened.
1: So this Victorian antiquarian Jardine complained when he started to write his account of the trial, quote, there's no state trial since the date of Henry VIII so barren of facts and so totally devoid of reality. I'm going to say that again. There is no state trial since the date of Henry VIII so barren of facts and so totally devoid of reality, end quote. It was the only trial he could find where the sole surviving account was the government's officially printed version, which, he wrote, quotes, was published not for the purpose of conveying accurate information, but of suppressing and colouring the truth, and of circulating such a version of the story as suited the objects of the government. And then it gets worse.
0: The surviving records have probably been tampered with. The lead lawyer in the gunpowder trial was the Attorney General Sir Edward Cook, spelt... C-O-K-E. In the years afterwards, he unaccountably carried around with him a Buckram bag, a bag made of stiff cloth. Finally, in 1618, after he'd been sacked in disgrace, Cook's Buckram bag was seized and in it were discovered the interrogations and other papers from the Gunpowder and plot, many of them in Cook's annotated copies. Why he carried them around with him in his bag for 13 years is a mystery. Anyway, the documents eventually found their way into the state papers, and at some time early in the 19th century were bound together into a separate volume marked Gunpowder Plot book. We've no idea what Cook or anyone since might have added, changed or removed, or if his copies were faithful to whatever originals there might have been, but it's these documents, the ones from Cook's Buckram Bag, along with the King's book, that are the basis of pretty much all modern historical writing on the plot.
1: There are a couple of other contemporary accounts of the plot and most books quote extensively from them but these accounts are also extremely questionable. They were apparently written in the months after the trial by Jesuit priests eager to prove that their priestly brothers were not behind the plot. So they set out to shift the blame away from the Jesuits and onto Fawkes and the other laymen who'd been accused and convicted and who were by then dead. Much of what they report is based on the king's book which is all most people knew at the time. It was like writing an account today from what you can read online in the newspapers. They also seem to have made some details up, as we shall see. So we can't really rely much on these Jesuit accounts either without better independent, corroborating evidence. So
0: what are we to do? Chilling fact is that we pretty much nothing whatsoever that as historians we can reliably use to find out anything about the gunpowder plot of 1605. Pretty much everything we think we know comes from what the government at the time wanted us to believe. And for all the reasons we've explained, we should politely but firmly decline to believe anything that lot tells us, unless we've some better evidence to back it up.
1: None of the evidence usually used to tell the story of the gunpowder plot stands up to serious scrutiny. At this point, most books about the plot throw up their hands and plough on regardless, telling the same story. Perhaps they think it's a pity to waste such a good story. We found ourselves doing the same thing when we started to think about the gunpowder plot.
0: Everyone repeats the same details, reports the same conversations, draws a veil over the complete unreliability of the evidence. But historians have to be more careful than this. The evidence produced by the gunpowder plot needs to be put into historical quarantine until we know much more about what was going on at the time.
1: The best modern accounts of the plot, like God's Secret Agents by Alice Hogg, also hunt around for other contemporary documents. She uses, for example, letters written to English ambassadors abroad or from foreign ambassadors in London. And this is great, but it doesn't add very much. English ambassadors were fed the official line, Foreign ambassadors in London were notoriously prey to gossip and tittle-tattle, and even more so to outright government propaganda. Even if we throw in this additional evidence, it still leaves us desperately short of anything reliable enough to tell us what any of the alleged plotters were doing for almost any of the year's months and days leading up to November 1605.
0: So, should we just give up? No. OK, but it means it's time to make some fresh coffee, maybe make it as strong as we can... And adopt a completely different approach. It's going to call on all our skill as historians, but hey, that's what History Cafe's about. This is certainly not the only well known historical story for which there is absolutely no reliable evidence. The story, for example, of Jack the Ripper is another, and we'll talk about it at the History Cafe. It's another story laughed at by many professional historians and scribbled all over by improbable and unbelievable conspiracy theories. But tackled with wit and care, it offers us really important insights into Victorian society and the Victorian press. So, what do we do about the gunpowder plot? Well, we have to look around the room, pull up some more chairs, in this case a lot of them. We have to use every historical skill we possess to build up a picture of the context and discourses that surround our event. We have to approach this story by asking very seriously what else was going on at the time. And the results are pretty amazing, as we shall start to see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.